Thanks for joining us once again on Core Ideas, the podcast where we delve into all things related to lake sediments. My name is Adam Jaziorski, and as always, I am joined by my good friend, Josh Steenpon. How are you today, Adam? I'm doing pretty good. I'm doing pretty good. And um, I have a good, feeling good about the discussion we're about to have in terms oh, good. of topical paleolimnology. This is one that is near and dear to my heart in many ways because I've spent a lot of time thinking about acid deposition and acid rain and recovery Mm -hmm. from said things. Very good. Tell the good people what we will be talking about then. All right. Well, we're continuing our arc on topical paleolimnology. And the reason that I thought this would be an interesting one to dig into is because at least from the point of view of the general public, or let me project a little bit onto what I think the general public thinks. Sure. uh, But I think that's fair. Is that it is a um, a solved problem? Uh, it's very often kind of held up as one of the uh, ecological success stories, um, along with I think you know uh, ozone depletion as big problems of the 60s, 70s, 80s. I guess um, that thing, everything came together and the problems were addressed, and it's no longer a problem. Yeah, of the things that. People got right environmentally in the 20th century. This is probably right up there uh, on the list. And in some ways, that's definitely the case, right? It's very true. And in other ways, there's maybe a little bit more to it. So a, a good topic for discussion for a little bit. Yeah, and, and it's timely. Um, we're a couple of weeks removed from it now, but we uh, earlier this year uh, marked the 30th anniversary of the signing of some key acid rain reduction uh, legislation between Canada and the U.S. Again, we're going to hold high our Canada bias in all things environmental that we ever talk about. Yep. Um, but yes, so in uh, 1991, um, there were some revisions, I forget what, I'm not sure what the technical term would be, to the Clean Air Act between Canada and the U.S. that really focused on um, he- restricting uh, the emission of acid-causing industrial emissions, the yeah. emission of emissions. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and they had an effect. And acid rain was has been reduced to a fraction of what it was. Um, and this was a very big deal. Uh, we'll link some of the media coverage that it generated in terms of um, there's definitely some... Um, you know, looking back to mark the anniversary of like how this is a very big deal. Uh, it followed five years of intense negotiations between um, Canada and the U.S. And it largely worked. And, um, you know, you have things like Sudbury, which we've mentioned before, was once upon a time the largest, or at least I think it's one of those things where going back into the um, Cold War era, I guess it was believed that it was the largest, but it may have actually been the second largest just based on not knowing what sort of numbers were coming out of um, Norilsk in the Soviet Union. Right. What was going on behind that iron curtain in terms of pollution? It was hard enough to determine what was going on militarily, uh, let alone environmentally, but a very large source of uh, 
emissions to the atmosphere. Yeah, and it was iconic for it. We've mentioned before that the um, uh, the Sudbury area, like my parents were aware of it growing up in England, that it was where uh, the astronauts prepared for the moon landing. And I think we've I think we actually mentioned on the podcast before. I think that twice. It was because of <laughs> geological formations, uh, not necessarily because of like the devegetating of the area due to yeah. the intense acid deposition. Were we talking um, about this and, last episode? I think so. <laughs> uh, maybe. We're talking about mining, yeah. Maybe that's probably what prompted. Uh, it was probably in response to because um, that would have been closer to the time of the uh, um, the anniversary, I guess. Um, but going back to it being a good news story is that um, emissions from Sudbury in relation to the um, nickel uh, mining and uh, smelting that goes on there. Um, have been reduced by more than 90% from their peak values, which have been, occurred in the 1960s. And I remember when I started my master's, like, and this is getting close to 20 years ago now, um, that uh, the graph then of the Sudbury emissions track, you know, my supervisor holding, holding it up to me and, and showing, like, this is one of the best, figures are best plots in all of science. And it's just this precipitous decline in terms of tons of SO2 emissions over time uh, coming from yeah. Sudbury. And it's just like rises, 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 very steep peak. And we'll have to link it when we eventually do the uh, the blog post to accompany this because it's just, you know, it epitomizes. Um, exemplifies the good news story aspect of all of this. Yeah, there are, there are a few examples where you can point to this is when the amendment to the legislation occurred this is when it started to be applied and here is the recovery or here is the change in the environmental impact and associated changes in the ecosystem after the fact oh big time like um again we're still very focused on suburbia but i remember going up there on a school trip in elementary school so it would have been early 90s um and, you know, being shocked, the only time I'd ever been up there and just, you know, bare rock, the whole city, everyone, you know, no, everyone's gardens, no trees. Mm -hmm. It was still very much in the uh, um, impact. I guess recovery was still, you know, a twinkle in its eye, basically. And, um, you know, then going up again 10, 15, 20 years after that. And it is, you know, it's a hell of a lot greener than it was. Yeah, um, for sure. So much like that you don't even really think about it. My uh, sister-in-law lives and works in, you know, she's an engineer and works in the uh, mining engineering sector and lives out in that area near towards where the things are. And, and you do see obviously exposed rock, but it doesn't look any different to me than uh, Yellowknife does driving around there where there's not this acidification kind of impact on the landscape we talked about other mining but not that would have that kind of footprint so it looks very much like a, an average boreal uh, environment as you're passing by and the pictures from the past i don't have a personal memory of what it looked like before that but the, the pictures are certainly not the same so there has been significant changes yeah and um i think another kind of cool thing that, uh, that I became aware of while reading the media coverage of the, the 30th anniversary is that the super stack, which is like an iconic part of the Sudbury skyline, which I'm not sure exactly what year went up without uh, looking it up, but it was like epitomizes the whole mindset of 
the solution to pollution is dilution. Yep. Where its entire purpose was to spread the um, emissions over a greater area to reduce the localized impact. Uh, it is no longer in operation and is scheduled to be dismantled, like imminently. Yeah, and it was built in like 1970 or 1972, something in that range. It was uh, something like that. Finished. There's a period of time, like up until the CN Tower was built. There's a brief period of time where it was the tallest freestanding structure in the world. Wow! And so, so up until 76. So from whenever it was built until uh, I think I think the CN Tower was built in 76. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So an absolutely massive structure with the entire reason for its existence to put this material as high up into the atmosphere, into the sky as it could be, to send those emissions as far away from the local environment as you could. And now, yep, decommissioned and, or if not currently, then will be decommissioned and... No, it is. It's not. It's whatever job it was, the job it was doing is no longer being done. And um, there's smaller stacks doing the fraction of the work that is necessary. And uh, it is um, scheduled to come down, which yeah, and probably would have had it not been for for COVID and all the you know things that have been delayed since then. So yeah, what a uh, particular picture of that change. Yeah, and I think it's probably worth at this point we talk about you know focus on the good. Uh, let's turn to the bad a little bit as why it went up in the first place. So a little review maybe of the. Um, causes and impacts of acid rain and they are many. basically yeah there are many so in terms of the sources like it was first identified in oh i forget when um the earliest like when the term was coined but in like the 1800s mm-hmm. and we've discussed this before in terms of the industrial revolution in england and it having various impacts but um on all kinds of things i think we talked about the evolution of uh the moths mm-hmm. and phenotypes and stuff before but uh basically you have uh sulfur dioxide and nitrous oxide emissions basically being going up into the atmosphere from various industrial processes um and then raining back onto the landscape with precipitation rain and snow and that's where what is referred to by acid rain and there are the direct impacts of lowering the pH itself um, as the soils and streams and lakes all become more acidic which has um, impacts ecological impacts as a variety of organisms are not able to handle that Um, lowering the pH increases the mobilization of metals from soils so then you run into uh, particularly this is a big deal for aluminum so you run into issues of metal toxicity uh, in the surface waters um, as you go up into um, you know looking up food webs you run into things like the iconic photos from lake 223 um, in the uh, experimental lakes area where they were looking at lake trout in an experimentally acidified lake where they reduced the pH from 6.8 to about 5 over several years and you basically had the lake trout were able to withstand the pH changes but their um, their prey was not mm-hmm. and so basically you had the fish all starving uh, um, and just struggling to get by within a couple of years 
and you know just like the picture of like the before and after shots of the condition of the fish is just heartbreaking yeah and and then just adding to the like um historical part of it and that being such an iconic photo and the work around ela being so iconic dave schindler having passed away just a, a couple of I guess a couple of weeks ago now, uh, that's another part of the legacy of this story as well. The between the phosphorus nutrient debates and the acidification experiments, it's really how ELA came to be. And yeah, that picture of the the trout on the measuring board, completely emaciated, uh, is another one of the things associated with acid rain that is so widely used. And there, are, and then the impacts just go on from there. Um, there are impacts on like ducks and loons and other waterfowl in terms of um, a thinning of their eggshells. Um, so they're like uh, their numbers were impacted. Um, impacts on vegetation, as we've mentioned, like in very intense areas, uh, like actually being devegetated. And so you know, so just ecosystems top to bottom impacted by this. Um, uh, inputs of acidity um and uh you know and today we can look back and say we got rid of it but there's a legacy you know there always is a but unfortunately yeah there's always a but so in terms of a legacy of acid deposition um and it being perhaps gone but not forgotten i think in many ways especially from the perspective of this podcast and our interests, there are very much dual legacies, I guess. Um, we talked at length about the importance of acid deposition for the formation of paleolimnology um, or the crystallization of paleolimnology into the science it is today um, because, you know, it's a big problem. And uh, I guess a lot of efforts were marshaled and a focusing of the mind on finding the re- relevant answers. And, and unique unique in terms of what paleo can contribute to that kind of question yeah for sure um and there's also uh the legacy of the acid rain itself directly uh in the soils and watersheds of many lakes uh particularly in soft water soft water regions um with a limited buffering capacity such as the lakes of the canadian shield or the boreal shield and what has what was noticed around the time, like say, turn, turn of the millennium, I guess, like early two thousands. I think there was a lot of focus on the fact that, you know, as we mentioned, when we talk about mining, especially in heavily impacted areas like Sudbury, like a huge amount of energy is required to maintain very low pHs in some of these lakes. And once emission controls were, you know, became much stricter, you had a real quick bounce back in terms of. Um, the pH of the surface waters. Um, but as time went on, you say, okay, biological recovery will obviously lag the conditions of some sort of time lag in terms of egg banks and generation times and dispersal. Um, but it seemed to take longer than was uh, originally anticipated, especially in, uh, place, in places like the Canadian Shield. Mm-hmm. And whether that was uh, related to a competitive type of inability to compete with organisms that were still established or things like that yeah uh, well it's and there are many things at play um and this is where my 
graduate research was really focused on was looking at one aspect of like a p- proposed mechanism uh, for at least in some lakes uh, why the biological recovery just wasn't happening and that was looking into the fact that calcium even though the pH had recovered calcium concentrations were much lower than they had been and the findings of this work was that yes uh, calcium decline has definitely played a role or is playing a role uh, in terms of um, uh, the recovery that has been able to happen. And the reason for that is kind of alluded to a little bit when we're talking about Lake 223 and Lake Trout is the impacts that it's had on various um, micro- microscopic organisms, particularly among uh, the Clodocera is what I was really looking at that require a large amount of calcium uh, for their carapaces and shell, their defenses uh, in order to grow these kind of organisms. Um, they molt periodically and then basically do like a massive inhale of calcium through the water to recalcify. And at a certain point, um, there just isn't enough calcium there to do what they want to do. And then this has impacts on their ability to propagate themselves. And so you'd have um, situations where uh, lakes were falling to calcium concentrations close to theoretical threshold values, below theoretical threshold values for some key aquatic invertebrates like Daphnia. Hmm. Is this the first time we've talked about calcium decline on the podcast, other than maybe your introduction to in episode one of uh, what it is you did as a research? And I think so. Think I think we may have alluded, alluded to it once or twice, but not spoken about it directly. Interesting, because it is one of those really, uh, I think, great examples, but also becoming in paleo. You know, it's it's you know, you said you started twenty years ago with your masters almost, uh, so it's it's been used as an example long enough. It's in textbooks, especially ones that have come out of uh, John Small's great writing lineage. Um, so it, it is really a. a good example of the legacy impact of environmental degradation after that initial stressor has been relieved and and solved as we've been talking about in this. I think it's a, a, I don't know of a better one, at least in my mind. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's definitely. So, so yeah, get my master's. So I did my PhD. So yeah, I began my PhD about 15 years ago. So yes, yeah, so it's been been a while on people's radars and um, it is definitely, um, I guess it's one of those things, it's complicated as all of these things sure, are. Yeah. And, you know, because there are multiple mechanisms uh, or I guess not even mechanisms in terms of the calcium decline. There's a couple of different angles that the story can be come at is one, calcium concentrations are falling. And if you go to places like the Dorset Environmental Science Center, um, that has a direct monitoring record of sh- uh, a series of shield lakes that I think we've talked about before, the A lakes, that goes back to, depending on the lake, uh, the mid to late 1970s. So now they're pushing on... 50 years? F- no. 40 years. Hmm. Coming up um, on 50 years. They're past yeah. their 40-year yeah. anniversary. Um and, and, and you see a steep decline over time in uh, calcium concentration uh, because they would have been, so the late 70s, you know, the records began, I guess, not too long after peak acidification, basically. 
um, and uh, you know a steady decline in, in some of the lakes. Um, and so there are two general ideas at play. One is that the calcium um, is lower in part just because of this decline of sulfate concentrations and you just have this like uh, um, the sulfate competes for binding sites in the soil so that as the soil became more acid it releases calcium from the soil and so calcium was elevated during the early parts of the record and this decline is part of the recovery um, right. Um, which is probably quite valid in some ways. The idea of like there may, may have been a calcium pulse uh, that accompanied acid deposition. But then at the same time, there's also the idea that that base cation pool in the watershed soils um, is only being replenished on a soil formation timescale. So we're talking centuries to millennia for the calcium itself to be weathered from the underlying bedrock and incorporated in the soils. I'm not a biogeochemist. I'm not going to be able to explain this very well. Um, but basically the, the, the calcium replenishment that was washed out um, is going to take a lot longer than just a, a couple decades to replace. And because the pools in softwater regions were relatively small, any kind of calcium pulse would have depleted it to the point that the there's not room for a bounce back in calcium. Or the calcium concentrations are now lower than they were historically, basically, because the pool has been depleted. Right. Yeah, because there's not calcium raining down on the planet like other elements. It is a geological. Actually, there was. And in the early days of, because um, this is... Uh, Again, it's effing complicated. Is uh, kind of a tagline through all of this because you would have had calcium, um, I guess, pollution, industrial emissions, but they would be largely bound up in particulates. And so, from what? Very, I don't. I, I'm not sure. <laughs> Off the top of my head, like I'm but, trying to think of just geologically, where would you get calcium falling? Like, is it lime or? Yeah, I'm trying to think of. Uh, anyway, interesting. I didn't know that. And, 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 and like sort of, I guess it'd be falling in like a dust kind of Yeah, I guess so, yeah. Sense. But um, I think in the early days of like emission controls, uh, I guess controlling of particulates leaving the stacks is a much simpler problem than um, uh, the, the scrubbers that removed the sulfates from the stacks. Right. Uh, from the emissions. So like um, like industrial emission of like calcium particulates dropped way ahead of um, sulfate drops. So it's one of those things where maybe like the ratio skewed through the um, declining phase. Mm -hmm. But anyway, that's a bit of a tangent that I wasn't really prepared for. But uh, <laughs> that's okay. The, that's uh, for. But the idea is that yeah, and um, there are two mechanisms and. It, conversations had with other scientists are like we have the you know are you not expecting the calcium to fall yeah. um like is this not a recovery signal and your loss of that you know daphnia from the cladocerin assemblages is in fact a uh, recovery signal and i go see that would make a lot of sense if the daphnia basically arrived you know like if the lake was unable to sustain daphnia calcium levels rose above the threshold value they bounced in calcium levels fell below the threshold value they dropped out but that's not what the case is when you look at the um uh 
sediment profiles from some of these affected lakes is mm-hmm. that you'd have, you know, a steady uh, relative abundance of Daphnia through the last couple of hundred years up until the 60s, 70s, and then they start dropping off. And then, you know, at in the last couple of decades dropped to like virtually zero in terms of their contribution to the broader assemblage. Um, and so then you go, okay. So the idea that they were temporary, I guess, this the conditions became right for them just, you know, while the lakes were crystal clear due to all the, you know, lovely acid making everything like a swimming pool um, uh, is not the case. And then this is a concern because, again, projecting onto what does Joe, Joe public think, I imagine most people don't really think about Daphnia very much, but the loss of Daphnia, as we saw when we talk about lake trout, uh, it, it resonates up food webs. You take out your um, uh, dominant algal grazers and key kind of trophic um, primary, uh, no, basically the link between the producers and the consumers. So all of a sudden you run into situations where you may have more algal blooms than you did. Yeah. And your the larger organisms that people care about, like fish, are theoretically uh, having a much tougher time because the organisms that are replacing the Daphne are not necessarily as uh, nutritious um, or easy to catch or a number of things. Yeah, a key linkage in the food web that translates to something that people do really not just care about, but see, you know, it's a, often about what you can visualize and, and emaciated trout or trout just not reproducing or whatever the uh, biological effect ends up being are, are definitely things to catch people's attention and still uh, a, a part of the story long after the APH has recovered. Yeah. And, and will continue to be because in many cases, um, like this, you know, is adapting to a new normal, like the mm-hmm. calcium concentrations are not coming back on their own, but we're seeing like things like pilot programs of, you know, can there be calcium restoration projects? And so in this district of Muskoka, I think they're doing pilot stuff where they're recycling the wood ash from like wood stoves and then spreading it out over a couple of selected. Oh, yeah. um, That's interesting watersheds to try and uh, bump up the calcium concentrations and see how that impacts uh, the the food web from the bottom up. Um, you know, in terms of uh, vegetation, there are impacts uh, on, so the calcium in situations where the calcium has been depleted from the soils, um, there are potentially forestry impacts because one of the big, another, I guess, that we never really alluded to in terms of like a, sink, I guess, of calcium from the watershed would be forestry because young trees suck up a lot of calcium from the soils. Uh, when you chop them down and take them to a mill down somewhere else outside of the watershed, then that calcium is lost as well. So there's another yep. potential source of calcium to be depleted. And you run into the situations of, um, you know, how, how many lumber cycles remain before the trees won't necessarily grow back in like a forestry farm. Um, yeah, where the limiting nutrient on the tree growth is calcium. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, or maybe not, don't grow back at all, but grow back much slower yeah. and then impacts. Really the, spindly, uh, aren't able to put the energy into leaf development and, and yeah. 
just have negative effects overall and cost money to the forestry industry because that's ultimately the, the goal. Yeah. So um, I think even though, you know, just put a bone in, like even though acid rain itself may have been largely solved, and in some cases, some poorly buffered lakes levels may to this day be still too high uh, in terms of restoring to their, you know, baseline pH per se. Oh, I'm sure there are the cases of that. Absolutely. But I think in general, um, at this point, those lakes fall into the category of acceptable losses. And by and large, um, the landscape is recovering on a, on a, on a pH level, if, if not a calcium level. So in terms of acid rain being a solved environmental problem, I definitely think on the big mission accomplished banner that uh, maybe being woven, uh, wove around, uh, you know, there's definitely, we can put a bit of an asterisk beside the solved kind of idea. Um, and yes, that may be looking at it from a glass half empty um, perspective and the glass is definitely half full, but uh, you know, the deterioration in many cases has been halted and the trajectory is one of recovery. But that recovery is unlikely to be complete um, because that big old threat multiplier that's lurking behind everything is already is acting as well. Like climate change is, you know, these lakes are not going back to the way they were at the turn of the, um, the 20th century. You know, lakes are warmer, summers are longer. So even as the, um, the pH rises, uh, condition, you know, there's no way we're going to roll the clock back. So we're, it's not really a case of recovery. It's moving on to a third state that is better than this third state could have theoretically right. a, been. A, a more neutral or a less acidic third state in terms of the chemistry and the biology that suits that, but in a new framework associated with climate. Yeah. And, and I mean, that's the case for any stressor that we've, we've talked about, you know, multiple stressors coming together and recovery moving into a different direction, whatever the, the stressors are. And, but also on top of that, again, this is a Canadian, well, this is a Canadian podcast based on where we are. Uh, and we've been talking about it from a Canadian perspective, a Northeastern North American perspective, probably because a lot of the same types of, uh, changes were observed in upstate New York and New England and those areas and similar types of recovery have, have, uh, gone on in those areas as well. I think it's fairly safe to say. And in some cases, um, similar things in Scandinavia and Northern, uh, Great Britain. So a lot of those areas, but in other areas of the, of the planet, industrialization is ongoing. You know, the, the emission part of the story, the pollution story, the acidification story is not solved. So it's solved from one particular perspective. Yeah. And I think especially when, you know, we're talking about in, in, in relation to a global problem like climate change, acid rain is very much a regional issue. Mm -hmm. So the emissions can only travel so far. It's like, you know, the emissions from Sudbury are not going to acidify lakes in Siberia, let's say. Like, there's a, um, a uh, 
geographic range. Yeah. To what the and and so that so the problem is regional, and that also means the solutions are regional as well. Um, and so when you have when you switch it to a more global view, there are definitely regions of the world where the problem is ongoing or ramping up. And I think, uh, you know, going back, I'm not sure what year that paper was on, but looking at the industrialization of China, for example. Um, in terms of acid causing emissions that's been ramping up for the last couple decades there. Um, and it is becoming an increasing problem. I think there is sitting from a better baseline per se than the shield. Like we're not the, the, the regions that were potentially being impacted were not necessarily as sensitive to acid deposition, uh, just in, in relation to local geology winds, um, you know things like wind, deserts, of the and mobilization. Yep. Uh, yes, um, but it's becoming a growing concern. And interestingly, I guess just to jump in, their their increase in industrialization is almost at the exact same time, like in the seventies, that uh, the decrease was occurring in North America. So it's like a shift between the locations in terms of the industrial development and, and potential for acidification. So just as you solve one, time to move on to another. Uh, yeah, but at the same time, like um, the potential solutions have also, are, you know, have already well, been Well, that's there. true so too. So yeah. when it does cross the boundary into like, this is absolutely affecting ecosystem health and when it crosses over into human health and um, concerns rise below some sort of threshold level, um, it can be curbed pr probably much quicker than it even was um, here. It's like what, when, when the will, when the, not the will, I guess, when properly motivated, I guess. Um, and uh, we made... Um, a reference earlier to the uh, Soviet, in the Cold War era and emissions in the Soviet Union, and I think the big industrial nickel belt of Russia is still um, still very much uh, pumping away. Yeah, and some recent pictures just in the last four or five years um, of like the river running blood red with mm -hmm. I know, was that iron I forget what that what was really driving it um, yeah probably i don't know off the hand but it's like one of the the craziest images you can imagine of it's like uh it looks like was well, not it's not even like food coloring because it's opaque like it's yeah. a particulate as opposed to or it's like a dissolved material that makes it cloudy and bright bright iron red flowing at the scale of a, a like full stream channel, <laughs> unbelievable, yeah. and and it's one of those things where I kind of thought it was like a historical artifact of like the the rivers potentially being you know we hear of like the um, rivers catching on fire due to mm -hmm. industrial uh, um, uh, industrial release of chemicals and whatnot, and then you see this like bright bright red river running through the landscape. It's like that does not look right. I, you know, I, I thought no. we were, I thought that was uh, in the past, but no. It is not. Not everywhere. No. no. Um, but, you know, 
I guess flipping it all back to the glass half full kind of point of view is that, uh, you know, the problem has been solved on a regional level. And there are definitely many parallels between asset deposition and climate change. And I think you often will encounter sort of like the idea of could acid rain be the template for global climate change? It's just the difficulties of jumping from a regional problem to a global problem. But the the, the process of the questions are very similar. It's like, yeah. Well, John, John talked a little bit about that and, and, his experience with that. And and it's exactly right. I mean, the concern is the scale and the regionality or lack thereof from a climate perspective. But otherwise, from a scientific perspective, you know, you, you need to identify some sort of mechanism. You need to support that with evidence from all different metrics. And there's even more of them for climate than there are for acidification. And you need to convince the powers that be that it needs to be legislated and at a global scale, I guess we're starting to think of it from a, a non-binding treaty sort of perspective, uh, but that needs to then translate to the local countries and putting in regional legislation to account for solving the problem. But yeah, and you know, so a binational agreement between uh, the US and Canada was instrumental to um, increasing or improving the acid conditions of lakes in our region of the world. And, you know, I don't know if when you're dealing with climate change, you're beyond binational agreements, even maybe at the U.S.-China level, although that would be the big ones. But, you know, be something. if you build it, they will come, I guess. Um, and there'll be a need for leadership. Uh, and I guess, you know, the cynic in me and just going through the pandemic year of 2020 has just shown how difficult it can be to convince people to do something that will not result in their death it can be, it can be really challenging at times. Then that can be disheartening for sure to think about what is a fairly straightforward solution and really not that inconvenient of one. If you, if you think about it, that has, demonstrable, or even if you can't demonstrate them, at least theoretical, significant benefits uh, and and to translate that. But on the other hand, there's also an incredible amount of people who are deeply passionate about solving these problems for themselves, for future generations. And as that the ranks of those people grow and grow and grow, the will of the political entities is, is going to have to pay attention at some point when it, when it becomes a majority that care, then that's when you can see some, some movement on that. And, and having good leadership is, is obviously a huge part of that. There's some interesting articles from the acid rain, uh, legacy, um, celebration, I guess, for lack of a better word, talking about that and, and how prime minister in Canada, Mulroney at the time was very serious about it and and may have met some resistance from his american counterpart uh which we've talked about a little bit already yeah what have future generations ever done for me yeah exactly uh so you know it's easy to be pessimistic but but also 
you know, the, the take, main takeaway story is that it, it was a good news story. Yeah. And, and then the parallels with the pandemic and, and you know, people, it, it may in, in some ways be eye-opening just how detrimental the year plus of this has been. And, and then to think that, you know, the impacts from climate change could be longer lasting, more significant. Uh, maybe that's enough to kick people into gear, the fear as opposed to the, the benefit part. Who knows? Time will tell. Um, but there are lessons to be learned from all environmental successes, whether it's the ozone hole, whether it's banning pesticides in in uh, use uh, or acid rain. Yeah. Now crises focus the mind and, uh, you know, lead to, you know, solutions being found. Where there's a will, there's a way, I guess. Would be the exactly. Way. And that, that's exactly it. Once again, thanks for listening to Core Ideas, the podcast dedicated to all things paleolimnology. If you'd like to reach out to us with a question or a comment or informing us about QAnon, please send us an email to coreideaspodcast at gmail.com. Or contact us through Twitter at Core Ideas Paleo. All of our past episodes and their corresponding show notes slash blog posts can be found at our website, coreideas.ajesiorski.ca. If you're so inclined, you can give us a rating or you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. We would absolutely love those five-star ratings, but to be honest, we really don't care all that much. We just do this for fun. And that's it for now. So join us again next time as we continue to explore paleolimnology in the knowledge economy era, sticking to our ethos of pure knowledge without the economy.